Hey everybody, welcome to episode 119 of the Youth Master Booster Podcast. We are so thankful that you are listening and we hope that you love this super exciting interview. This interview was so much fun to record because I got to talk about my favorite people in all of youth ministry, truly an influencer of the influencers, and you'll find out today why that's so extra special. Dr. Tim Elmore is with us, and he, in many ways, embodies a lot of the things that Youth Ministry Booster wants to be about. You're going to hear about his habitudes. You're going to hear about some of the things in his life of both youth ministry and then influencing ministers that we think is key and vital to what it means to boost your youth ministry. Don't be the starving baker. Learn to feed yourself, to help take care of others, the ideas of self-leadership. like These are all the things Youth Ministry Booster is about and we want you to be about. We need community of leadership. We need to get with other folks that are healthy and honest about the hard work of youth ministry and bolster and boost each other. And so take this interview as a launching point for the ways in which you are going to begin to do youth ministry the right way, the healthy way, the honest way. And get your notepad out because there's some really good stuff in here. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with one of our favorites, Dr. Tim Elmore. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Youth Ministry Booster interview episode with... Okay, so there's a lot of people that we get to interview. There's not a lot of people that when we get the email correspondence that they're ready to be interviewed, that Chad and I both jump up and down with glee. And today, that's one such person. And so you probably know him and have read some of his works or maybe have heard him speak at a conference or an event or maybe have booked him at a conference or event. But one of our favorite people related to growing up and making youth ministry better is the Honorable Dr. Tim Elmore. And he's with us here today talking about some of the questions related to youth ministry and his latest project. So, Dr. Tim Elmore, how are you doing today, sir? I'm very well, Zach. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to have you on a uh, cold uh, Friday morning. Is it as cold in Atlanta as it is here in Tulsa? Yes, we are. um, You know, cold is a relative term. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Uh, listen to NPR this morning and it's freezing everywhere. We think freezing is anywhere about 45 degrees. So we're, we're that's right. Long sleeve. Down here. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody in Atlanta wearing a long sleeve. Like yeah. it's real cold. Yeah. 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 Well, Tim, we're going to jump into some questions today that we like to ask a lot of our folks and people may not know this because they probably have read you as, as an author or heard you as a speaker, but you actually have some pretty deep roots in youth ministry. And I think some of our folks might want to know the, the youth minister side of Tim Elmore. And so t- take us back to the day why in the world? I mean, you're doing things now and growing leaders uh, is, is your is your kind of like umbrella collective for various things that you're doing. But you started youth ministry in the local church. So what got you into youth ministry and what continues to kind of keep that at the forefront of your work? Well, as a freshman in college, I thought youth ministry was um, wimpy and, and okay. way easy. <laughs> um, I was out doing street stuff and and in prisons and working and, and hopefully adding value. But, um, I took a teaching position and a part-time youth worker position at a church uh, okay. in, in Tulsa, actually. Um, uh, and I suddenly realized this was legit, um, because it was full of challenges. Uh, I didn't realize. So here's kind of how it all started. I kind of wrote out my quote unquote life sentence as a sophomore in college. And my, the phrase I was using was, I wanted to influence the influencers. Uh, and so I felt like students would be my best target. I was a student, after all, in college. So I started teaching high school students and doing this part-time youth pastor thing. Uh, and like I said, I suddenly realized, holy smokes, this is harder than I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, that's how it all began. 
um, I, as a college student, I started um, doing master's work and I started teaching undergrads. Uh, and um, so teaching and youth pastor was kind of the place that all began and in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Wow. Can I ask what church in Tulsa? <laughs> yeah, it was a little church that's now, I think, a non-denominational church, but it was a, it was an Assembly of God church there. And um, I had three kids in the very beginning. Okay. Uh, and, and I just fell in love with them. Slowly learned that to, to grow this thing was going to be a big challenge for me. That's incredible. And again, I think that's one of those, like pe- people always from afar think, you know, it's the question that people always ask. So what do you do as a youth minister? Yeah, and yeah, then it's yeah. like, you know, well, come, come walk, come walk a mile in my shoes kind of thing. So that's great. Yes. Well, maybe, maybe from that very beginning or even just maybe a little bit later on, what's been one of your favorite youth ministry moments? I think for a lot of people, the, the call to get into youth ministry is kind of either accidental or just uh, it happens upon them. But there's probably something that happens along the way that is very much like I, I cling to this. I hold on to this. Like this is either the God inspired or the most fun, hilarious moment that keeps me grounded uh, in the ups and downs of the relational calling that is youth ministry. Yeah. Wow. There's a million of them that come to mind. Probably <laughs> the two most memorable for me happened uh, um, about 10 years apart. The first one, based on that statement I just made, Zach, of influence the influencers, that just was indelibly etched in my brain. So I wanted to influence high school students in the high schools. So um, mm. I started working in the high schools. But um, based on my work in high schools, that phrase, influence the influencers, came to life uh, when a student challenged me if I was really doing that. And okay. so that was good. That was good. You know, you, you, life is real when students challenge you like that. But one night I came home from a student meeting that I just had and I turned on 2020 on TV. And you remember that, that show? It was been on yeah. forever now, I think. Since Leviticus, maybe. I don't know. Probably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, kiss was being interviewed by the by the host of 2020, the band. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Peter Simmons, Ace Freely, Paul Stanley, Peter Chris. And um, as I was watching the show, I, I suddenly realized that probably every kid in my youth group was watching that show because that was the hot band back then. Yeah, and the big uh, interview, sure, sure. Yeah. So long story short, they were the the members of KISS were just bragging about how much money they were making, all the, you know, the stuff they were selling. And I started thinking, oh my gosh, what is going to, you know, I, and I, so I, I turned the TV off because I was, I was actually mad that they were just bragging about all the women they had, all the money they had. And how was this influencing the students that I was trying to serve? Hmm. And so as I started walking around the dorm uh, that I lived in at the time on the college campus, I felt a nudge on on in, in inside of me thinking I've got to do something about this as I'm walking around outside I start feeling like well I start thinking about that statement influence the influencers and to make a long story short I'm thinking oh my gosh maybe I'm supposed to talk to these guys and kiss and of course that sounds absolutely absurd but <laughs> make long story short, I decided uh, all right if I'm ever in the same town at the same time they are, I, I will find a way to talk to them. And as it turns out, the very next semester, they're coming to town. And so I find a way to, to talk to them. 
Uh, That's great. Yeah, it was hilarious. And I ended yeah. uh, at two o'clock in the morning after the concert, they're at the Camelot Inn, which was still around at that time. And I find them in a bar uh, sitting around in <laughs> all of them there with, with the girls that they've got with them. And yeah. I walk up to him and I go, you don't know me. I'm Tim Elmore. I'm just a college student here in town. But do you ever think about the influence you have on students? And one of them, I think it was Peter Chris said, yeah, we're selling a lot of belt buckles to these kids, you know? And I said, no, no, no. Right, right. I said, do you ever think about the influence you have with the lyrics of your songs? And that launched us into an incredible conversation about what they were doing about their own faith, their own spiritual journey. And we talked for probably 15 or 20 minutes that night about what they were doing. And it was, it was an amazing conversation. None of them were high. They weren't drunk. They weren't wasted. And, um, it, it, they, we had a great conversation. And what's really cool, Zach, is one year later, I, I mean, I, after we got done, I, I said, can I pray for you? And they said, yes. And one year later, um, Peter, Peter Chris, the one that was, that started the conversation. Yeah with the group because of a faith decision he had made. And uh, from that point on, I had been praying for them. And uh, I later found out they joined hands and prayed before their concerts. And uh, it was, it was an amazing thing, but all that to say, my little statement influenced the influencers. It came back to bless me many, many times that opened up a door. One influenced several others, Elton John, Styx, uh, others, all because of that little statement and that little push from that high school student saying, are you really doing what you said you're doing? That's great. Is, is that really you feel like has propelled you into continuing this work uh, beyond just teaching in the local setting and working at a local church? I mean, is that is that really what do you think is the fuel for for all of what kind of growing leaders has become and is becoming? Absolutely, because I think that statement and that encounter really pushed me to, to ask the question even wider. How do I influence the influencers? If indeed that's what my statement is to be. And I feel like it has. So it started as a college student where I thought, well, these guys are influencers, you know, but now what I'm doing with growing leaders, I'm now literally trying to influence emerging leaders out of high schools and middle schools and colleges everywhere we go. And I think it started with that simple sentence that now has grown much, much wider in scope. Wow, that's incredible. But as we know, Tim, not every situation in youth ministry is incredible. And I think for a lot of yeah, our listeners, yeah. they're hearing that and they're, they're thinking, you know, that's that's great, Tim, for you that you got to, you know, have a, a late night conversation with an international selling rock band. Yeah, but yeah. that's not every night, sir. Yeah, <laughs> in fact, some nights are quite terrible. Yes. Uh, and so yeah. maybe to just, just, to, just to frame a little more, like what was maybe a time or a night where you were like, hmm, I don't know if this is so great. Maybe, maybe we're done here. Was there ever a night that you felt like you almost should have quit what you're doing, hung it up, yeah. uh, you know, and, and just and just said this was enough? Yeah, no doubt about it. That's happened more than once. Um, I mentioned earlier that I started with three students, and uh, that was <laughs> that was uh, um, hilarious actually because I thought, well, is this is this as good as it gets? But yeah. I got married about a year later, and I'm still serving in the same place there in Oklahoma. And um, my wife joins me in this venture, and um, I suddenly realized at that point that life had to change. Marriage made it very, very challenging because Pam was seen as a an intrusion. You know, I, I was mm. a single guy and, and had all the time in the world for all the students that I was serving at that point. 
But Pam was uh, seen as, well, what is she doing here? And while I think they liked her, I started realizing I had to balance myself. And Pam started feeling like she was one of the kids because I was focused on the kids, you know. And one night we had a very hard conversation. And I was seeing that my marriage was suffering because I was giving my complete attention. And Pam was kind of, I need you to help me here and here. And Pam felt like an intrusion because she, uh, you know, was getting in the way. And I remember one particular night, I had so mishandled my marriage to her and this relationship that I'd focused on with the students, these teenagers, and I wasn't doing it well at all. And Pam said, we got to figure out how this is going to happen. And she wasn't threatening divorce, but it was, it was a time when I realized I was not navigating this most important relationship I had and all these kids that I was not handling well at all. I, I was trying to make them all a, a priority and I didn't, I didn't do it well at all. And it took a come to Jesus meeting with, with my wife to realize that I wasn't married to the kids after all. Mm. You know how that goes. And yeah, and I thank God we made it through it. But I was a failure at navigating the priorities in my life. And it took mm-hmm. my wife to call my attention to the fact that she wasn't one of the kids. Uh, I, I, that out. So, yeah. So, so what does that look like for, for, for you and for Pam? Like, what was that kind of like practical change? And so, like, I definitely, I think naming yeah. that relationship that way, I think is something as a pitfall that a lot of youth ministers can fall into, especially newly married ones or newly uh, engrossed in, in ministry leaders is to, is to consider all relationships kind of the same. Like I give, I give my hundred percent at church. I give my hundred percent at home. But what actually ends up happening is you give 50 and 50 and it's not quite the same. So what what kind of changed for you all out of that conversation moving forward? Yeah, two big things, Zach, happened. Number one, I realized that I I had become a starving baker. Uh, okay. I was baking bread for everybody else, but I was not eating myself. I was not practicing what I was preaching. Uh, so that was a huge one. And that became one of our habitudes later, the starving baker. Secondly... I decided that if no one else was going to get ministered to, Pam was going to get ministered to. And the eventual family that we started was going to. So that that had to become my number one priority. Uh, so I found a way to make sure that even though I was serving all these kids and the people at the church, I had to make sure and focus on the person that I had at home. If she wasn't going to get it, I wasn't going to export it. And then thirdly, I decided that I needed to figure out what it meant to be a leader in my home and a spiritual leader in my home. And nobody had ever taught me that. Even though I'd taken classes and yada, 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 I had to figure out a way to to do that. So um, I ended up doing a book called Soul Provider on this, but it was all about how do I make sure that I'm starting at the house and that I'm going to learn to be a spiritual leader in my own home. And, and I did. I, I mean, I'm still not perfect yet, but she became a, pra- I, I became a practitioner and this became my laboratory to figure out what it meant to lead in my home. And if it wasn't going to work there, I wasn't going to take it anywhere else. That's good. No, and I, I think that's such a reversal, right? I think for a lot of folks, they think about, well, I'm going to work hard and it's going to be, you know, husband or parent at home. Yeah. But it, it, in so many ways, 
uh, it's not just about that your ministry to your family is your first ministry in a priority sense, but I love that what you share is like, that's the way that I learned it for ministering well at church. That's good. Sometimes the flow is just wrong, right? Like sometimes we just, we think in the, we think in the wrong direction sometimes. That's good. Well, well, Tim, one one of the questions that we always love to ask, it's kind of a namesake question for our interview process is, is what was your after nine question? I think for a lot of folks, I mean, you speak on the regular, you're engaged in a lot of events, but when you were in youth ministry, whether it was a, a Sunday or a midweek, like after all of that kind of relational energy was expended with a group of students in a room uh, or in a setting, like wh- where do you go? What do you do to kind of process or to <laughs> like, what are the questions you ask afterward? Like wh- where, where does your mind go? Where do you, where do you physically go? We have some folks that go out and get a milkshake every Wednesday after uh, like, but wh- where, where does, where does Tim Elmore go after kind of a big relational energy expense or speaking engagement for you? Yeah. Wow. That's a great question, Zach. A few things are flooring around in my mind, but one thing uh, that I keep returning to, and I have ever since I launched Growing Leaders, uh, was all built on this idea of, can an event change a life? Uh, mm-hmm. We try to do events very, very well, as most people listening do. I mean, that's kind of the staple. Um, I think we live in a day of events. Kids come to them, but do they, do they really want the discipline of growth and what we commonly call discipleship following that event? Um, mm. Jesus becomes a product that we sell uh, and market. Uh, so I spent a lot of my ministry under John Maxwell. Uh, John's this New York Times bestselling author in leadership. And the first 11 years of my time with him was in ministry at, at a church. And later, I left him and then came back to serve at a nonprofit he had started in Atlanta. But um, we were doing events, and I kept asking myself, even though people say, oh, that event just changed my life, did it really? Or did the event really uh, foster a change, of course, but didn't the change really happen in the months that followed that event where they had to get into the grind of a smaller community, not a big event, but a small group? My challenge was combining uh, the numerical growth that had to happen under John Maxwell as a youth pastor, but how did the spiritual formation happen later? Mm. That was a hard thing. So um, right now, our purpose statement at Growing Leaders is to turn ordinary, everyday students into growing leaders who will transform society. But that requires mm. both events and a process afterwards. So I think the big question I find myself trying to answer is, how do we do something after the big event that actually translates into growth? Okay. And that's the big deal. Um, okay. Is that something that you are designing and deciding before the event even takes place? or And what, what's the relationship between the event and the process? I think a lot of our listeners would share, yeah, I've got my Sunday or my Wednesday program, but that's not all that I'm about. I mean, that's one of the things that we have to do, but they're always interested in the process. So for, for you and for your group, like what, what is the... What is the the thinking or the creative work between the event, the relationship between the event yeah. and the process? Well, at the beginning, I only thought about the event. 95% of my time was how could we make this better with smoke, yeah. hands, whatever. You know? And <laughs> yeah, transitions, transitions. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say now, yes, indeed. Every time we plan an event, we're pl- we're thinking, we've actually flip-flopped that. We're spending the majority of our time thinking about the process afterwards. Okay. Turn the big group into a small group, or how do we uh, start interaction after the the big talk that was given? 
So we do, and and we think it requires resources. You know, in other words, we need to spark a conversation after the the big event. Uh, we need to spark application. I mean, no, I know that's an age old question, but how do we get them off their butts to do something about? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we spend the mo- most of our time on the process now, and that's where Habitudes comes in. Pictures are worth a thousand words, so we we launch conversations with these images that we call Habitudes, and we try to help leaders become better mentors, so that they're able to ask great questions and spark great. Uh, obedience and mm. and uh, situations, so um, it's been really really rich, and and we can talk further about that if you want. But now now the majority of my time is not thinking about the event; it's thinking about the process. Okay, well I definitely want to get back into that. I think that relates a lot to your latest work on what it means to to march off the map, what it means to uh, again rethink kind of the whole entire thing. Uh, which is, I think, most ask this question first. If you could go back in a time machine to young Tim, young, uh, small, small part-time youth ministry teaching Tim, what is something you would tell him in his first year of ministry that only you could get through to him? You know, um, I think it might be that I need to start with self-leadership. Okay. It's not my own term, but it's something I think I, if I go back to the 38 years ago when it all started, uh, I think it would be self-leadership. And here's why. Um, the very first house my wife and I bought, uh, it was a home. It was a brand new home, which was kind of cool. But the builders only put the front, the, the rose bushes and all that stuff. That was all put in. But the backyard, they did not put in okay. dirt, you know. Now, thankfully, they yeah. put a six-foot high fence around that backyard so nobody could see the dirt. Uh, and it all looked fine. But I remember probably about a year and a half or two years into the purchase of that home, I was standing at my sliding glass window, looking out at the dirt clods and tumbleweeds that were sitting in my back lawn and thinking, I really ought to put something in there, you know? And I remember just stopping and thinking and hearing that quiet voice on the inside say to me, Tim, you've treated your life like you treated your lawn. And I remember thinking, what, 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 what do you mean? What do you mean, Lord? You know? And, and, as I thought further, as I was quiet further, actually, the, uh, the, the ongoing thought that came to me was this. My front lawn was beautiful because, you know, the builders put that in. But my back lawn, you know, that was, that was nothing. The back lawn was just dirt. And that's how my life had become. Everything that was public, that was in the front lawn, looked great. I looked good, spoke good. On the platform, I was great. Everything was was working, but the private side was was just dirt. I was not practicing what I had preached. I was not doing the things that I had asked everybody else to do. And there was a fence around the back lawn, the inside. I had yeah. put a fence there, and most most pastors, most leaders, most teachers feel like they have to put a fence up because you know you can't let people inside. You know, so even though I might have felt vulnerable with certain phrases I had used. My private life was like my backyard, and I was stunned. That was the conversation I was having with God, and it was not working. And I remember asking, God, do you want me to take a sabbatical? Do I need to stop Is if, if, if it's just her? And I remember distinctly, uh, I felt like God was saying, no, you need to keep going, but you need to acknowledge to the students and the people that you're leading that your life is not 
working that's dirt inside. And I was crushed. But to make a long story short, I went forward and I got up the very next week in front of all the students that I was leading. And I confessed them that it, this was this was not working. I was not doing what I was telling them to do. And wow. I mean to tell you, it was a confession to end all confessions. But um, from that point on, I decided I was going to walk with them through this journey that I was reestablishing, that I was going to build spiritual disciplines in my life, reestablish them, actually, because I had them once before, but I stopped doing the show that I was doing, you know? <laughs> the, the ministry took it all out of you, right? So um, that was it. It was, it was all about leading myself before I try to lead anybody else. And now this leadership thing we're trying to do, I'm trying to make sure that I'm doing what I'm saying uh, that, that needs to be done. and But it all started with that horrible discovery that I was not doing it and that, that I would go back and tell my original Tim, you know, that yeah. self-leadership, don't try to, if it's not working at home, don't export it and you got to you gotta lead yourself first. That would, that would be it. If I can ask what maybe specific or one in practice shifted related to that which wasn't true of you that you were professing true on the stage or, or like uh, that language that you shared of I was vulnerable enough on stage, but, but I wasn't authentically vulnerable, I think relates a lot to for ministry leaders. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think well, a lot of it was the, was the spiritual disciplines. I know that's a pithy phrase that we just throw around, but, um, it was things like quietness, being quiet and reading and, uh, and praying. All of those things that we have these series that we do about. Um, I had gotten so busy that I wasn't actually doing them. So, um, I started learning to drive to work every day and not turn the radio on or not turn, you know, now it might be the podcast on or the, or the, the, the playlist on. And just being quiet and listening or reading, actually reading and, and thinking, what is this going to do? And then journaling, all these things that we're good at, but, you know, projecting that we do, I actually had to go back and start over and do them. So uh, I think that was it. Some of the spiritual disciplines like, like those things. Um, I had become a diabetic, so I couldn't just fast the way I normally fasted. But I had to fast other things uh, like noise, you know, podcast or, or whatever. So I don't know if I'm going the direction you want me to go. But no, That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And I had to do the things that I once did but wasn't doing now in my busyness. No, that's great. I think it's important for a lot of our ministry friends to hear uh, that sometimes we can be really good proclaiming the practice, but not practicing. No doubt about it. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, you know, it brings to mind a great story. Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi in the 40s when he was still with us and he was leading this this incredible revolution, this quiet, uh, nonviolent revolution. He had a mother, a woman come to him one day with her little girl by her side. And she said, Gandhi, my little daughter is eating way too much sugar. You need to tell her to stop eating so much sugar. And Gandhi just kind of put his hand up to his chin and rubbed it a little bit and said, no, you come back to me in two, two weeks. And she said, no, just tell her now. And she said, no, you come back in two weeks. So the, the woman begrudgingly walks away and comes back in two weeks with her little girl next to her. And she says, now, would you tell her to stop eating so much sugar? And this time, Gandhi kind of got down on his knees and looked that little girl in the eye 
And he said, little girl, you stop, need to stop eating so much sugar. And she said, okay. And she walked away. Well, now the woman looks at Gandhi and says, why wouldn't you tell her two weeks ago? And very wisely, Mahatma Gandhi said, ma'am, because two weeks ago, I ate too much sugar. And it, he brilliantly was simply reminding her or telling her, be, you know, I'm not going to tell her to do something I'm not doing. And so he wanted to make sure that he was actually doing what he was saying. And that is something that I believe, even though it's simplistic in nature, we must not project on others. We must not tell others to do something we're not doing. And if we do, we need to say, hey, I'm on the journey myself. I'm still struggling with this myself and get authentic about it. And I think that's such a radically important for for leading in this generation into the next generation is whether the buzzword is authenticity or vulnerability, it is key that we lead in ways that we are true about or open and honest about. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Yeah, we all know the answer, but the key is, are we are we acknowledging that we're not doing it or are we making sure we're doing it before we talk yeah. about well, it? Well, Tim, we, we want to talk a little more today about your latest project called Marching Off the Map, Inspiring Students to Navigate the Brand New World, which is, you know, a powerful minute by the title that we're going to have a different drum that we're, we're beating to and, we're, <laughs> and we're, we're getting outside the box and we're thinking four-dimensionally, but maybe break down for us, like, kind of the direction of this project we're marching what was the map where are we walking to now uh for these young explorers how does it relate to the life of the youth pastor and the youth ministry yeah great well first of all thanks for bringing this up I, this book is something i'm very very excited about now marching off the map is a phrase that i borrowed from alexander the great that's where it was inspired from um years ago actually centuries ago alexander the great was known for being this incredible greek conqueror that assembled three armies and marched across the known world, conquering every bit of territory that he marched upon. But he didn't stop there. He was known to march into the unknown world. And actually, he turned some of his soldiers into map makers. They literally had to map as they marched. And I love that because that is such a picture of where we are today. I think as as, uh, people that lead students, that teach students, that minister to students, we are now marching into a completely different territory. And if anybody's listening that's doing this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. We are going into territory we've never been in before. No one's yet told us how to do it because it's never been done before. And how do you lead a kid that's on social media, you know, eight hours a day? And how do you help them navigate the phone that's always in their hand? And so in this book, I try to help write, draw new maps, or at least help the reader come up with brand new ways to set a template for doing things that we've never, never done before. And that's what I try to do in marching off the map. Okay. That sounds great. (laughs) But uh, what are some of the ways that you're helping lead outside the template in the written word? Because I think a lot of folks are already dubious of, okay, you said there's no map. And there's no way to know. And then now uh, here's the book that knows how to know. So give us some uh, maybe some exemplars or insights into the ways to rethink in this whole thing. Yeah, good. Okay, so one of the chapters I have in the book, um, I talk about swing sets and plumb lines. And those are just metaphors that help us begin to come up with a compass for this true north, finding a true north for this new territory that we don't have maps for yet. So let me talk about swing sets and plumb lines real quick. 
Um, I think the swing set is going to be a very helpful metaphor for many, many years now. Um, you remember when you had your first kid or maybe you were a kid, <clears throat> you climbed on the swing set or your kid climbs on the swing set. The first thing they say is, higher, daddy, swing me higher, you know? And so the we intuitively know that the only way we're going to swing forward higher is to swing backwards better. You got to pull them back before you can swing them forward. So I believe that there's no way we're going to move forward better until we learn to move backwards better. And that means we need to look backward at the beginning or maybe the beginning of our work, our career, our the church we're leading and say, what was it we were trying to do in the very beginning? And when we swing backward, we need to ask questions like, what was the original intent? What were we trying to do? What was the goal? What were the questions we were trying to answer in the very beginning? And so when we move forward, we're asking those questions better for tomorrow. Um, what is it? Are we still doing what we said we were going to do? Are we asking the proper questions? So we can go more into those, but I think that's the swing set. I'm swinging backwards and asking the questions about the origin before I have any right to to swing forward and, and try to make progress and be a progressive uh, in the future. So that's that's that one. And then the, the, after the swing set, I talk about the plumb line. You know, that's a biblical metaphor that we read yeah. in the Minor Prophets. The yeah. plumb Amos. line. Amos. <laughs> uh, I had a whole divinity paper about how Amos uses that line. Has that plumb line. Yeah, yeah. And if you remember, plumb lines were used by yeah. fishermen to plumb the depths of the water. So it was mm. about depth. That's key. But then mm. secondly, it was used by builders. They would hold this string or this line or this cable uh, with a weight on the end of it they would hold it next to a wall that they just built and it would show them whether the wall was crooked or not and i believe we're going to have to come up with some plumb lines that we can hold next to what we're doing and say whoop we're crooked here um i find it really interesting that 100 years ago we called thieves crooks we called them crooks because they were crooked you know and so are we holding something next to what we've done, the work we're doing, and say, you know what? We need to admit we're crooked right now. We're an inch off of what we said we're doing. So what have we come up with that shows us that we're off of what we said we were going to do? I'll stop there, but that's just critical. And so I try to, in the book, uh, provide some sort of a map or a compass that that shows us um, about you know how to measure the depth that we're doing and how do we measure the crookedness of our work that we've actually gotten off track of what we said we were going to do. I think it's so maybe unironic that in a very sophisticated tech-driven age, images you've given us are quite simple. You know, the, the plumb line is just a weighted piece of string. And yet, and yet, very good. Well, Tim, uh, if folks wanted to catch up more and learn more about uh, the, the project, obviously the website, other things, what, what, what a place people can follow with you and what's next for Okay, that? yeah. The best way they can contact us is growingleaders.com. And um, that's where you can find the Marching Off the Map book. We try to price it the same as Amazon. And so it's, it's doable. We actually offer with the book a travel guide. So the person that's reading it can be scribbling notes that they're coming up with on applications to this plumb line thing or this swing set thing. I really am thinking we're going to have to find ways where we're finding a true north in a very zany, zany world of artificial intelligence and 
And um, I'm not even sure if as youth workers were even ready to ask the questions or answer the questions, certainly. But um, the website, Growing Leaders, will provide some free stuff there, as well as the book that they can um, navigate this new, new territory that we're walking into. Well, Tim, let's do a little bonus time stuff. Uh, I just want to know maybe where you're thinking. You've written the book. You've had a conversation. What, what is like the next near future for youth ministry as an enterprise? Um, I think it's going to be that we're able to navigate the multiple generations that we're trying to serve. Uh, parents, uh, you know, the, the grandparents even, and, and this emerging generation that there's such a gap between. I think we're going to have to figure that one out. And I think that's probably what many of them, the listeners right now are, are thinking about. Uh, but I think secondly, we're going to have to really figure out how do we give these students something that seems timeless, but feels timely. Those are two words I also talk about in the book. How can we be timeless and timely at the very same moment? Uh, we all want to be timely. We want to be cool and relevant, you know, to these students. But is there a way we can say, students, we got to be timeless too. And that means what seems like it's antiquated really has a place in the 21st century, in 2018, 2019, 2020, 2030. Um, and I think we're afraid of that because it seems old fashioned. But we've got to find a way to be timely and timeless in the world that we're moving into. Oh, okay. So t- timeless and timely. I'm bought in. Relate that to the conversation about event and process. I think for a lot of our youth ministry leaders, that's where they're feeling it because they have so much energy tied up into the event and they wish they could focus on the process. But there's outside forces that are telling them that the event is the measurable tool. Is, is the problem not having the right stats or um, metrics for the processes or help us kind of walk through that relationship of we have an event, we know we need the process and it probably the process is where the timeless becomes timely, but our, our hirers or leaders or other folks that are kind of surrounding the ministry as an enterprise only have eyes on the event. Um, I remember being in that situation with John Maxwell, my my supervisor, my ultimate leader that I was answering to, humanly speaking. And uh, so I remember having a talk and saying, "John, if you'll let, me, if you'll if you'll hang on, it's going to take a little time to do the process. So we'll do some really cool events and we'll have big crowds. And we did, but we had a very good heart to heart conversation, and he was so good." To, to, to say, yep, I'm going to hang with you. We're going we're gonna to do this. But that meant we might do some big events, but the crowds might dwindle a little bit when we do the small group thing or the discipleship thing or the one-on-one thing, which we were trying to do. But um, that was a conversation I had to have with my senior pastor to make sure he knew this may not happen overnight. It's going to happen over time. And uh, the good news is we, he hung with me and, and I was there 11 years and we grew from that little group at first um, to a larger group. But it was it was we made sure that every student leader was discipled and was in a small community where they were being poured into as well as leading something really cool, you know, that was really big. 
but I think we're going to have to have those conversations with our supervisors that are hard, that, but we admit we're going to have to do the timely and the timeless. And by the way, something that came out of that, Zach, was these habitudes because we felt, felt like pictures started really cool conversations that were timely, but the pictures were about a principle that was timeless. So we felt a way to be rele- found a way to be relevant with an image called habitude, uh, and 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 now it's 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 become a cool thing. So that was that was how we did it at least in in my time. Well, that's great. Again, Tim, thank you for your time today, and thank you very much. Yeah, it's been so good to be with you, Zach. I hope it's been helpful. There you go. That's the good stuff with our Tim Elmore. His habitudes are so helpful, not just for you as a leader, but for your student leadership team. His latest book is pretty great, and I would definitely check it out for both you and your ministry. Again, thanks to Dr. Tim for being on the show and sharing with us today. You can learn more in the show notes below or at ymbrocks slash 119. Until then, we'll see you next week. I'm going to show you what I'm made of.